when we shove wildness out into these wilderness areas, you know, capital W wilderness, we lose connection to places like this. And I think for, for us to have any hope in defending what we have and not losing any more, we need more people to care deeply about places like this or little green spaces in the middle of the, of the city or, or any of those little pockets where wildlife and just wildness exists that maybe we don't notice because it's, it's easy to care about big wilderness but if we can get more people caring about just, you know, leaving a section of their yard unmowed so that so that the small critters can have a place, it's easy for that care for the big picture to just kind of expand, you know. And I don't I don't want to be one of those people that just seems like all I care about is going out where no one lives, right? Because I don't live there. I want wildness where I live, where I spend all my time. This is season one of the Free Flow podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast, a show that takes today's best storytellers outside into their favorite wild places for conversations about craft, conservation, and the creative life. On today's episode, our guest is Montana poet and writer Chris Latre, author of Becoming Little Shell, which is forthcoming from Milkweed Editions, and also of the multiple award-winning collection One Sentence Journal, short poems and essays from the world at large from Riverfeet Press. You'll hear Chris graciously read selections of this book today for us on the show. His conversation with producer Rick White took place on a snowy midwinter pre-pandemic morning in February of 2020, just west of Missoula, Montana. So tell me where we are. Council Grove, which is a primitive state park about seven miles west of Missoula off Mullen Road. And it was the location where the Hellgate Treaty was signed that led to the forced removal of the Salish people north, right up Higgins Avenue into the Flathead, where the CSK Reservation is now. Can you give me a, a visual? What are we what are we looking at? So this is just kind of a it's a small park and by primitive it means that they don't really maintain it. Um, a lot of ponderosa pine. This tree right in front of us, it's an old the top's broken off, but you can tell it's an old tree. I've got photos of a great horned owl sitting there. This kind of bare snag on the other side of it, there's a hollow that every year there's a great horned owl nest and get all these people out with the big fancy 600 millimeter lenses on their cameras taking pictures of the babies that just kind of sit right out in the open and a lot of scrub brush, a lot of birds out here, other small wildlife, 
I don't know, it's just nice. It's close to my house and, you know, get out here for a poke around for an hour or half an hour or just whatever. What kind of what kind of birds do you see most frequently out here? I like seeing the there's a lot of northern flickers. There's a lot of uh, Lewis's woodpeckers, which are rare most you know in most of the country but they're they nest here I mean I get them I live probably three miles as a crow flies from here and I get them on my bird feeders all summer and I post pictures and people are like where did you see that and the Lewis's woodpecker is the also has I don't know the infamy as being the only actual surviving specimen that Lewis and Clark sent back you know, it's obviously long dead and stuffed, but it's, I think it's in the Smithsonian. So I see those pileated woodpeckers. We're walking by us about to a spot where there's a couple years in a row, there was a nest of a northern sawwet owl, which is tiny little owl, all kinds of different water birds once we get up to the river up here. So yeah, just a quite a diverse collection. So you've been a, a heavy metal rocker, uh, an IT, a, a self-professed uh, run-of-the-mill IT dork. When did birds and watching birds and interacting with wildlife come into your life as centrally as it is now? Wildlife was always a big part of it. So when I was young, we lived, there's a house out in the middle of the field by Frenchtown High School and we lived there before the high school was there and nobody lived out there so you know there were a lot of coyotes and big birds and things like that that we would watch and then when we moved up Six Mile which is kind of up, up in the mountains above Houston there's the sawwet nest in that snag right there I mean we'd, we'd see elk and deer and all kinds of stuff so big wildlife was always something i was interested in but i don't know maybe the last decade is when i started getting more interested in just birds in general and that's one of those things where the more you pay attention the more you start to care about it and then you start to care about other things because you start to learn like well, why are these birds here? What is it about this particular landscape that, that draws them here? So it, it's like, like a great introductory like gateway to just noticing a lot more, just noticing in general. I would welcome the opportunity to live somewhere reasonably remote country trails and roads accessible on foot from my front door and going to town for supplies no more than a monthly undertaking. The more time I can spend away from town on the days I'm not forced by need to be there, the more time that begins to actually feel like living. Barred owl on a cedar branch crouches, stares, and takes to the air directly over my head. I think it was 20, around 2014, you were starting to feel 
pressure in your job, your tra- traveling sales job, taking you around. You talk about it in your book a little bit about uh-huh. eating too much road food, right? And just not feeling healthy, not getting out into the wild like you wanted to. Uh huh. And then at the end, of, towards the end of that year in October, your your father passed away. Uh huh. Within six months, you'd put in notice at that job. Uh huh. And a lot of that seems connected to me. And you know, you're you're explicit about it in your book as well. That you were just you weren't getting able you weren't able to do this no. as frequently as you wanted to, and that became a necessity after for sure after your father passed. I mean, it always was. It just kind of you know, I watched my dad. He worked 43, 44 years at the mill in Frenchtown, and you know, he worked long enough to get mortally ill and have no real kind of life after after he retired. And I just didn't want to go that route. The job I had wasn't, I didn't have any emotional connection to it, for one thing. For another, as a manufacturing consultant, I was often working to assist industries that I would rather see fail, you know. So then it became this kind of moral and ethical challenge as well. And I just had enough. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've, I've been in similar situations myself. Sure. Particularly after the death of, of people I revered uh-huh. um, or that were very close to me uh, in times of grief. And always in those moments, the two things that I end up clamoring for and, and making enormous choices and changes to my life are to be more connected to wilderness uh-huh. and riding more. Right. And just slowing everything down. Mm-hmm. That seemed like a 2015 was a big turning point for you in that you were already writing and posting on your blog. You'd, like you said, long identified as a writer, but that, that seems like that. Can you, can you talk about that time? Well, I think it was something I'd been wanting to do for already at least a decade. But, you know, we always say, well, as soon as I get to this point, then as soon as A happens, then B is going to happen. And then... Either A never comes or you take on things in your life that raises your financial overhead requirements or your you just make your life more complex. So A becomes a moving target and you never get to point A to enable point B. And then it was, you know, when my father died that I realized enough is enough and point A is now, you know. There's, look at that big heron standing on the top of that tree. Yeah, look at that. Uh Uh-huh. There it goes. Tonight I went to an open house featuring the wares of folks from a kind of local art collective and smiled at the collection of middle-aged hippie types. Then, catching my reflection in a pane of glass, the battered Carhartt vest, the disheveled ponytail halfway down my back, the abundance of gray in my shaggy beard, I realized more than ever before that I have grown up to be one of them. So tell me about your companions that you'd bring out here. So Darla was the main one. So when my wife and I got together, we had six pets. She had three Jack Russell Terriers, and I had a big mutt and a couple cats. And so 
Orly, who was the oldest Jack Russell Terrier, he died first. And then my dad died. And then a week later, one of the other Russells died. And then two months after that, my big dog died. And that left us with Darla, who was the youngest Jack Russell, and my two cats. And then one of them died. So when it got down to, like, like Bernard, who was my big dog, was Darla's buddy. And you could tell she felt a lot of grief when he died. And we were both grieving, I think, when we started coming out here pretty much every single day. The line on Jack Russell is that they'll, they live as long as they can until they kill themselves. Because they're, like, I have one now that lives up. I mean, she is a nightmare in a lot of ways. Her name is Bucky. And... Darla was pretty mellow, especially for a Russell. She didn't, she hardly ever barked. Um, she kept to herself. Uh, yeah, it was just kind of low key for a Russell. And she was older by the time we started coming out here too, which, you know, she'd come alive out here. But yeah, she was just not your typical fire and piss and vinegar of a, t of a Jack Russell. So she was, you know, we would bring them all out here sometimes, but the bulk, pretty much everything that I wrote about in that book was just Darla and I out here. And yeah, we came out here all the time. We both, you know, I'm 75 pounds lighter than I was, you know, when, when I kind of hit the wall and, you know, she got in shape too, you know, that wasn't necessarily the only reason, but it was a, like emotional shape too. You know, that last essay, which the notes on the sacred art of dog walking, well, you know, it is kind of the, I think the anchor of the book, I would say. I agree, yeah. And, uh, you know, it talks about just kind of overcoming grief and my own, you know, as so many, I'm really hard on myself, you know, and my own kind of self abuse in how I was living my life and how you know coming out here with my dog was kind of what pulled me back from the brink you know tell me about the brink well you know you're I was middle-aged and you know I was 340 pounds and uh, wasn't doing any of the things that I liked to do I was kind of chained to a job like I mentioned that had a lot of moral and ethical concerns that I was finding more and more difficult to face and yeah I just was not in a good emotional place and you know it was through coming out here and it's it's an ongoing thing you know I think people who are of a darker you know, I don't know. I mean, there are probably people I could talk to that would say that, you know, maybe I have depression. I don't know. I've never, I've never been to a therapist or anything. This, this is what I need, you know? So it's an ongoing battle. Absolutely. But that was when I really realized it. How did that feel for you? Did it manifest in, uh, in, I don't know, for, for me, uh, I relate to that 
And it can be like, like this debilitating lethargy. Uh huh. Oh yeah, that, that feeds on itself. Mm-hmm. Just that inertia, mm-hmm. where just getting up off the couch sometimes is like the hardest thing to do. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of and you you don't necessarily realize it until you're looking in the rearview mirror. Yeah. So you're getting through it, and you start feeling better, and you think, you know, why did I make these choices? And at the time, you realize that you're really not necessarily in control of the choices that you make. I mean, you are, but you aren't, you know, because you're not really aware until you become more reflective in, in the moment, right? We, we tend to not be in the moment enough. And that's one of the things I've tried to do, you know, in the last however long it's been now, six, eight years, is really focus on being in the moment. That's really what it comes down to. That's 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 the key to observation. I mean, I think that's a juvenile bald eagle out there. Things that you notice that you don't if your head is down and you're thinking, okay, when I'm done here, I got to go do this and I got to go do that. I mean, asking that follow-up question, like, why is this bird here? Uh-huh. Um, is the step that I feel like a lot of people don't get, but which you, you do so well in your book. Like, that's something I have in common, like, with Jim Harrison which his name comes up a lot whenever I talk about writing or, or anything. And I... Such I, an inspiration. Right, right. And and just that kind of level of observation because wildlife and birds in particular come up so much in his work. And I remember reading a interview with, I think it was Doug Peacock, talking about, you know, because him and Harrison were friends, talking about Harrison as being kind of the least outdoorsy outdoor guy he knows because Jim wasn't about going out in the backcountry for weeks at a time you know like Peacock you know and I like to think that I fall somewhere in between those two in that I love the idea of going out and spending time but I don't get the opportunity to so I'm much more of a slow walking you know taking my time not getting an overtaxed approach to being outdoors more like Harrison probably than some of these other guys so this I believe was the first poem I wrote for decades and it was after reading a poem the same title same format that Harrison wrote and, and that, you know, you could say if there was any, like, one kickoff moment, it was probably that. So every reading I did for this book, I would open with this because um, another poet friend of mine, um, Holly Wren Spaulding, who has come to Beargrass a couple times, she lives in Maine now, I guess, had an had a idea of, like, a planting the flag type poem that kind of, this is, this is what I stand for. And, and I would read this as like at the time that I wrote this, this was, this was my planting the flag. So I'll read this one. I mean, I told, and it's dedicated to Jim Harrison because I ripped off the title, ripped off the format, and I'm sure he would be fine with that. In the music world, they call that sampling. That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I believe. I believe in the leveling off after a steep climb, blasts of rain on my face, the sound of creeks and rivers and lakes and oceans stroking the sand and dirt, wind in the trees and thunder. Christmas lights downtown, food carts, ice cream trucks and beat up old pickups, 
women with noses and asses and personalities bigger than what's considered appropriate, and dogs like that too. The smell of clean sweat and dirty sex and breakfast, men and women and children and weeds and flowers and grass, poking their way through the cracks between those spaces where the world says they're not supposed to be. My copy, I've actually got edits that I've made to this poem that when I read it, I, I change a few things. And that's one of the things that, that they're never done. Similar to uh, to Harrison and that and grief, how central has um, has walking been for you? Well, again, it's one of those things where uh, you know science is catching up to what people have kind of in- intuitively known all along how good for you it is emotionally, not just physically, right? So, you know, when I was a kid. If I couldn't ride my bike to it, I had to walk. And that's just something I've carried over. When I used to travel a lot, I'd try and find places to to hike or walk or, you know, all of that stuff. So it's always just been a huge part of my life and to the point where I like reading books about it, you know. Uh, it's just a great way to interact with the world because you're moving slow, you're close to the ground you can kind of sneak up on stuff. I don't know. I just, I love it. Totally. Especially in a place like this. Yeah. And you, you catch a heron in a way that you wouldn't on a... Right. If you're driving or even on a bicycle. So Jim Harrison, um, in his book, Dead Man's Float, which was his last published book of original poetry before he died has a it's more of a prose poem almost like an essay called the sacred art of log sitting where he talks about recovering from back surgery and the doctor tells him you can walk your way out of this and he talks about going on these walks with his dog Zilpha and uh, how it kind of changes because he's a much slower and he feels like Zilpha is is impatient with him and and he's you know sitting on has to walk away and sit on a log and then there's kind of a turn for the worse when Zilpha dies and I kind of riffed on that idea to talk about Darla so he Harrison died writing a poem at his desk so when Copper Canyon put out the paperback version of Dead Man's Float. The last page is a photograph of his journal that he was writing in, and you can just see his writing deteriorating. And then in the facing page is, you know, the the printed, you know, copy of his last poem. I mean, and it's and and the thing is is um I knew that was going to be in the paperback. I've I know a couple of people at Copper Canyon, so I knew when it came out um that that was going to be in there. And I ran out I ran out of books at my signing and then we had a bunch of pre-orders that I had to sign and the day that those came and I was signing them was the day that we got the shipment from of the new paperback Dead Man's Float and I opened that up and looked at it and for whatever reason like all of the emotions that had happened over the last couple of weeks and and having those books next to mine and just the relationship but but how mine is totally standing on the shoulders and I feel wouldn't exist without a lot of Harrison's work I went in the back room and I just wept 
ugly tear. It's just like all of a sudden, you know what I mean? How sometimes that type of emotion just comes out of nowhere. And that's like, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty powerful, but I was glad, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was celebratory in a way, you know, I've wept those tears yeah. before. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Yeah. They come out of nowhere. Right. And just, just knock you off your feet. Right. It's like throwing up. It's like all of a sudden it's like, I got to have my face over some water or something like immediately. <laughs> My little companion, Darla, full of heart. (laughs) Was betrayed by the one in her chest and I must face the rest of my days. Without her vigorous enthusiasm for life urging me on. See, they're, they're still hard to get through. This one, less so. This is a half century sitting on the can, reading poetry, waiting for the coffee to be ready. I can read that every day. (laughs) (laughs) Poetry helps, you know. How so? Well, just reading, reading, like whether it's Harrison or Mary Oliver. a friend of mine sent me uh, a guy named Robert Sund, who was a Pacific Northwest kind of, uh, you know, he was influenced by a lot of the same people that that I, you know, the, the Chinese poets and the Japanese haiku poets and stuff like that, and, and a nature-based kind of approach to his work. That's another one that lately I've really gotten into. You know, when you, when you, when you find people who you can relate to their experience, poetry can be such a beautiful way to do that um it can also be obtuse and and (laughs) stuff that i don't understand stuff that people think is great that to me i just i don't get it so i understand people who don't get poetry because there's a lot out there that that i don't get but the stuff that i do get i i can't live without it you know yeah to most people if you say poetry or you talk about reading a poem their eyes will glaze over Uh almost instantly yeah um, when when poetry became something that lived primarily in the academic world, I think it lost touch. Like like one of my favorite readings ever, a couple local poets, Mark Gibbons and and Dave Thomas, did a reading at Charlie B's. I mean, and watching that, I was like, this this is where it belongs because it's just a, you know a form of storytelling, and. And it's of the people, right? You know, so it's like people playing music on their porch. How much we've gotten away from that, too. You know, it's like this communal thing. And good poetry really can bring a group of people together, you know? Well, it's like that Brian Doyle thing. Just the energy in the room of, you know, he had six different readers reading the work of someone who was a magnificent writer everybody was a little different every essay was a little different but it was just a powerful energy in that room you know for an hour i was crying like i was cutting onions yeah it was it was great 45 minutes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful and terrible uh-huh. right <laughs> for right the same, for all the same way. right um, yeah that was a special night do you ever do do you do writing out here do you bring your notebook i yeah i mean i have it with me right now in yeah. fact but 
yeah, I'll bring my field notes and because I think it's stuff out here and I'll make note of it or if I'm seeing a particularly abundant amount of wildlife, I'll make note of it. Can you take me through your kind of your your writing process? As far as you take it down in field notes, you've got it. How much editing do you do after that? Minimal. At least to the initial sentence. And then, you know, to make it work as a poem, you know, I'll put in line breaks and sometimes I'll make little changes, but it's not a lot. The process I have now, like for working on my book, is I get up early anywhere between five and six and I have a little meditation cushion that I'll sit on for 20 minutes and then I'll usually write a haiku I've been trying to write haiku and I usually have like right now I'm working my way through the Brian Doyle book I've read it in spots but now I went back to the beginning and I'll read a couple of those and then uh open up my laptop and start working on whatever, wherever I left off on my book. Um, and then evening is when I'll usually write like my sentence of the day. Sometimes those will happen in the middle of the day and I'll make note of it and then transfer it like, you know, into my running list. I have just the vaguest idea of what my process is that I try and make sure and at least do. But if it, if it doesn't happen first thing in the morning, if it happens later, then at least it happened. But I just, as much as I can get done first thing, the better. I'm in a better mood all day if I get some of that done too, because it's not hanging over my head. That's the worst. Yep, totally. Last year, was it last year? This was all beaver activity. So you can see these chewed off by beavers. I have a couple chunks of the shavings like in my little bowl of curios that one collects out and about at home. He was building a dam and then when the water rose in the spring, it kind of washed it all away. And I'm hoping the beaver I saw the other night is somehow related to that. This one came out of the snow leopard, Peter Matheson. It was a quote from uh, a Sherpa and he's talking about how the Sherpas are so cheerful in their work and he talked to this Sherpa and they you know it's not about serving these people it's the task so that was a, a note I made in my notebook while I was reading that book serve the task not the employer Uh, my friend Jillian Kessler teaches at the International School in the Rattlesnake, and she's had me out to talk to her class a couple times. And one of her students, it was actually her daughter, asked me what my favorite one was. And, uh, and at the time, I didn't, I, I couldn't think of one. I didn't have one, but I went back through. And this, again, is a Peter Matheson. He was talking about a book, I think it was by a Russian guy, and the character commits suicide. And his comment, um, and it was in the last interview before Matheson died. And this is kind of a paraphrase or a reworking in my own words and my own feeling of what he quoted this guy as saying. And that's, I don't know that I will ever simplify myself enough, but I will die trying. 
that just being that, you know, the rest of my life, I just want to slow down, not stop observing, not worry about accumulation and all of that. So yeah, that, that's probably my favorite one. So we haven't talked about your aphorisms in here. You have a handful sprinkled throughout of, of those um, that stand out pretty markedly different than a lot of the other ones. Uh huh. Where did where did the impulse and I guess the courage to put them out there? It's a it's a ballsy thing to put an aphorism out into the world. I think. Well, I didn't know that's what they were, and in fact, I'd never even considered it until so. When I gave my reading, my release reading for this book at Fact and Fiction. Mara and I had argued about whether I was going to do one or not because for all the years of playing rock shows and people not showing up, I was convinced no one would be there. And, you know, the place was packed. And I was obviously very moved by the community kind of lifting me up. And I have felt lifted and carried by the community from the from from day one. And it still happened. You being out here is a form of of being lifted up by the community. You know, Anna Maria asking me to recline. All the things that have happened. People emailing me and and coming into the store and just all of it is is examples of being lifted up by the community that I cannot properly express the gratitude. And it's why I'm thrilled to do stuff like this because I, I owe it. That said, my first event after the Fact and Fiction one was in Bozeman and my publisher and his wife were there. My wife was there and, uh, and the woman who, you know, sets up the events at uh, country bookshelf was there. So those people were all people who kind of had to be there. The only other two people there, well, there were three, there was a guy in off the street and then Michael Earl Craig, former Montana poet laureate and um, no pressure. Right, right, right. And Jim Harrison's son-in-law. Max Schwartzberg, who's married to Jim's daughter. Wow. So no pressure, right? And right. and uh, Earl, Michael Earl Craig goes by Earl Craig. So Earl said, he's the one who said, well, a lot of those are like aphorisms. And I'd never really thought of it that way before. And, and then I thought, isn't aphorisms like something that your grandpa drops on you like at Thanksgiving? So it kind of had this sense of, of like, is that really something that I want to be tied to? But you're right. I mean, they are. And I it was just purely by accident. In the same way that Cheryl Nothi, another former Montana poet laureate, described a lot of them as American haiku. And haiku was something that I didn't think of as a serious art poet form, poetic form, just in my ignorance. So it wasn't until then that that I started researching, you know, the fact that it doesn't have to be 575. It's it's this huge tradition that that it again is one of those greatest things that have happened in the wake of this book is being exposed to this I mean literally feeling that connection across centuries and even millennia to like Basho writing his his haibun and his and his haiku in Japan and and the Chinese poets I tell this story all the time. This one particular one, a guy's talking, writing a poem about 
gathering wood on the mountainside and coming down and it's winter and there's the smoke from the village below and he's reflecting on that and I'm thinking this guy was writing a couple thousand fucking years ago and he's writing and observing the same thing that me and my people are observing today and and just that that to me is like the magic of literature the way that it just can connect us across cultures and time and and all of it so yeah that that I don't know what drove me down that tangent but that's one of the things that one of the unanticipated things that has happened in the result in the wake of putting this out waffle house isn't that a great illustration mara ponish yeah did all the illustrations i woke up to the earliest light of day spilling across the field outside my window the dog snoring in a semicircle around the bed, a soft, warm female under the same sheet as me, a cool breeze from the ceiling fan above me caressing my face, and still, still, my first conscious thought was, I wish this town had a Waffle House. <laughs> I, I had a similar, similar string of losses and deaths in my uh-huh. life. Um, I think a little bit after after yours, maybe two years after yours. And I remember the weight for me manifested physically a couple of different times in uh-huh. different ways. You say being 75 pounds lighter, and all I think of is just shedding grief off more yeah, so than just yeah, physical absolutely. weight, you know? Uh-huh. Um, I've had my dog for 12 years now. He's getting older, and yeah, I've... I did similar walks uh, down in southwest Montana. We'd go on a two-mile walk every day around yeah. a loop around the, the fairgrounds right all along the Beaverhead River. Uh-huh. Sandhill cranes. Yeah. Geese. Ducks. Uh, saw some whooping cranes. Oh, some yeah. rare whooping cranes one time. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I forever associate that with, with my dog. And I remember being in the thick of the grieving, like really close to the grieving. Uh-huh. And Often my mind would turn to um, Finn is his name, Finn's passing, uh-huh. and I would I would kind of yeah I would I would well up with tears. Yeah, I mean just, this is the most I've been able that. to talk about Darla without tearing up. Yeah, I can't read that essay, you know, even some of the little poems I can't read, you know. Did you notice any changes in her uh, after? After your father passed and after Bernard passed and you guys were, were doing that? Well, she'd gotten plenty pudgy, too, you know? <laughs> so as she got more exercise, she got a lot more active. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she had a heart condition that we didn't know about, which ultimately, you know, cost her her life sooner than we wanted, sooner than we expected and unexpectedly. And that was really hard, but... You know, we had a couple really good years before it all happened. And it was sitting down and writing about the last couple years experienced with her that I kind of came to realize the importance of what we were doing together. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you reference her as a guide of sorts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we kind of both lifted each other up. And there's spots all over here, like this that we just walked through. It's all overgrown with uh, 
hawthorn and uh, overgrown with hawthorn and it gets really green and I have a picture you know coming through there of her standing right at the top of that hill and then like the photo on the back cover is her running towards me you know on this trail that we're standing on now so there's images in my head at just about every spot of this particular park that that I photographed or just that I can remember I mean, it's beautiful out here. It's beautiful at dawn. It's beautiful at sunset. It's beautiful like in the spring, even when it's hot and Darla would jump in the river and I would jump in the river. Just, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, David James Duncan talked about, you know, becoming intimately acquainted with just a short chunk of the world and how important that can be. And that's kind of, this is kind of my place for that. You know, there are other places I go. I like going up the rattlesnake. I like going up, you know, Patty Canyon, but, but this is my place. When you walk it now without her, does it, what do you feel? Well, I mean, it's like anything, you know, you, places become associated with relationships and I'm not, you know, my, relationship with her was as important as the majority of any relationships I've had with any people, you know, obviously family and intimates are a little different, but, but not so much, you know, I, 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 you know, I can't, uh, I'd ever, I'd hate to be the one who had to choose between saving my dog and a stranger, (laughs) you know, that's a horrible thing to say, but I don't know. I'd probably go dog. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of there with you. Sometimes we don't know how empty we are until something comes along and fills us. I have dear relationships with people too. People I live for and would die for. But Darla gave me something I needed and didn't know it. She was a guide of sorts who led me back to a key part of what makes me someone anyone would want to share time and space with. It's like she recognized my grief for my father and the loss of the other animals, not to mention the gigantic and terrifying changes in my life that I had initiated and somehow hoisted me up on her shaggy little back and carried me out of it. I like to think that in some way I was the same for her, but that could be the ego talking again. I bow to her a thousand times, 10,000 times regardless. Unlike Harrison in his log sitting, I don't have a list of any simple rules for dog walking. I would just recommend that if you have a dog, get out with them whenever you can. Receive the gifts they live to give you with gratitude. And if you bag up their shit, don't leave it trailside. I don't know that I've made it all the way back out of my own deep hole or not. I just know that the journey must continue without Darla. Some days it seems bearable, others not so much. I might not have gotten started when I did, if at all, without her and her relentless enthusiasm for life no matter how she must have felt physically in the final weeks of her life. The gift of life she returned to me fills me with immeasurable gratitude. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote, Above all else, do not lose your desire to walk. Every day I walk myself into a state of well-being and walk away from every illness. I have walked myself into my best thoughts, and I know of no thought so burdensome that one cannot walk away from it. I would amend that to add, just remember to be curious, to be kind to those you encounter, and whenever possible, be sure your walking is in the wake of a joyful, boundless, and furry little butt.
Chris, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this has been really fun. Yeah. thank you to Chris Latre for being such a brave, generous, and open-hearted guinea pig for us on this, our very first Free Flow podcast episode. Thanks also to Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues for our theme music, to the Montana Arts Council and the Prop Foundation for their generous support. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe online at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To get in touch with Chris or to buy or pre-order his books, pop into the Fact and Fiction bookstore in downtown Missoula or visit his website at chrislatre.com. For information on Free Flow Institute's upcoming workshops and for links to the things that we talked about on today's show, check out our show notes at freeflowinstitute.com slash podcast. <laughs>